Hello, everybody. Glenn here at the top of the show with a call to action. When we started Clay Temple Media three years ago now, 2017, and at any rate, I guess that was three years ago, we were not really sure that anyone would be interested. And in fact, Brandon said something along the lines of, this is a show that 30 people will want to listen to and were two of them. We have been really surprised and, and really lucky to have such a robust listenership, a, a lively forum, and extraordinarily generous Patreon support. And we've grown our audience across the network to a little over a thousand listeners to each of our shows. But this year, 2020, we would really like to grow that audience even more. In fact, we've got our eye on doubling that number in order to keep our podcast going for the long term. Now, we're doing some things on our end. There's going to be at least one new show this year, and we are even looking at advertising in some SF magazines. But we'd like your help, too. And we're going to incentivize that, of course. And what we would like you to do is review our podcasts. The more reviews we have, the more likely then we are to show up in a, a search on some kind of podcast app and to be recommended to people browsing that app for a new podcast. I mean, we think Elder Sign is at least the 10th best podcast that discusses H.P. Lovecraft. But if you search for Lovecraft in Apple Podcasts, we will never show up because we just don't have enough reviews. And we'd like to change that. And we'd like to change that for all of our shows. So, all right, what are you going to get in return for writing reviews, which we know is a task that no one actually wants to do? Well, we're going to give away some prizes. We're going to give away three prizes. In fact, one of them is a free bonus episode on a story or a topic of your choice. The second one's going to be a free nomination on an upcoming Patreon vote. I mean, even if you aren't a Patreon supporter, you can still nominate something to a vote. And the other option here is going to be a free trade paperback book inscribed by us, dedicated to you, thanking you for your help. And the first winner gets to choose and so on. On top of all of that, on top of those three individual prizes, we're going to do something for everybody, which is that if we get to 100 reviews on any of our five or six shows during this period, we will do a bonus episode of that show. So potentially five bonus episodes coming your way this summer. We're going to run this bumper here in February, also in March, and then again in April. You're going to get real sick of hearing it. And then in early May, as soon as my grades are in, I'm going to draw some names from a hat and pick three winners. And the way you get your name in the hat, this metaphorical internet hat, of course, you get your name in the hat for each review that you write. So if you review each of our five shows on the app you use, that's five entries in the hat. And if you go wild and review each of the shows on apps you don't even use, you can get even more entries. So the more you do, the more reviews you write, the greater your chances of winning are. And then you can just let us know by the end of April how many entries you get. You can send us a screenshot or just make a list, whatever you'd prefer. Uh, you can do that at our email, which is claytemplemedia at gmail.com. Or you can message us on Patreon if you're a Patreon supporter. Or you can message us on Twitter. I mean, we're, we're findable, right? If you know how to use the internet, we're findable is what I'm saying. Uh, and by the way, if you have already written a review, and, and many of you have, and thank you so much for that, obviously we're going to count that here in terms of getting your name in the hat and towards that 100 review goal. And so then we'll do the drawing. And if you're one of the three winners, we'll be in touch with you about that. And we're very excited to work with someone on crafting a, a special bonus episode. Those special bonus episodes, those commissioned episodes, that is really one of our favorite things to do because it, it lets us work together with a, a listener in, in coming up with ideas for shows to do. And then we're going to do this all over again later this year to encourage some social media sharing. But that is for another long and, uh, I'm sorry, tedious bumper uh, in the future. But all right, you are all awesome for helping us out. We really do appreciate it. 
But now let's actually get to the show that you came here to listen to. Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're talking about The Ebony Frame by Edith Nesbitt. This story was published in 1891. So I'm very excited to, to report really to you, Brandon, but also I guess to the audience who's listening in that over the last few weeks, we've had a really significant increase in our listenership uh, for some reason. And this, of course, is awesome. It's what we're here for. So first, I just want to say a huge thanks to everyone who helps get the word out about Elder Sign and about the other shows that we do on the network. It's very clearly been a huge help. So thank you very much for that. But Two, I also want to say that if you're new to the show, well, welcome. Thank you for joining us. But also, if you are new to the show, you may not know that this is really just one of, I guess, six. I think we do six shows on the network. I've lost track of how many we actually do. So you may want to check out some of those other shows as well. Uh, we do a Neil Gaiman podcast called Hanging Out with the Dream King. And we also do a, a science fiction and fantasy podcast where Brandon and I are going through the works of Gene Wolfe. This is uh, called the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. does exactly what it says on the box. But we'd love it if you checked out those shows too. And of course, you can find those wherever you found Elder Sign. But all right, let's uh, let's actually get back to the matter at hand. Let's get to Edith Nesbitt. I'm really excited for this story because this is the very first Edith Nesbitt story that we've we've done. And I don't know her work very well at all, but she is a massively important figure in the history of literature. So we really should be doing more of her work here on Elder Sign, but also maybe just around the network, really. Yeah, I definitely know her more by reputation than by her work. She's a really important figure, as you said, Glenn, especially in children's literature. And so I was really shocked to discover that she had written all of these horror and ghost stories and uh, weird fiction tales. I mean, this story is just a weird fiction tale. It's a cursed object tale. Uh, And I was just so glad to discover that she'd written in the genre that we're covering. And I'm definitely going to pick up some of her more popular children's books, like The Railway Children or Five Children and It. Uh, These are ones I think that many are familiar with. Yeah, and she wrote a lot of uh, things that I think we would probably call like YA-oriented fantasy as well, besides just The the Railway Children, which actually does sound pretty awesome. And I don't know, I'll probably try to check those out on, I don't know, ATOS or some other show or something like that while we're doing this. And I should say that even though we've got this collection by Edith Nesbitt, I don't think we've got actually even a quarter of the work that she did in this genre. She's actually done enough in the genre of weird fiction that we could just do a whole Edith Nesbitt podcast. So so we will probably go back to this well a lot, I think. But let's stop talking about the story and let's start talking about the story, I guess. So Brandon, it is your turn to do the, the recap. So let's do it. Yeah, the story is told in the first person by our narrator, whose name is Mr. Devine. He is the narrator of this tale of dread. And we learn right off the bat that he has just become rich. His aunt Dorcas has died and left him with an inheritance of 700 per year and the ownership of her home and really estate also. We learn that his family is descended from the Dukes of Picardy. And Mr. Devine finds that being rich is a luxurious sensation. And this is primarily because he's had to work his way through life up until this point. And the way he's made his money as an underappreciated journalist has not been satisfactory in his mind. Yeah, this opening line is really just fantastic. I think this might actually be my favorite opening line of anything that we've covered so far. This this just line, to be rich is a luxurious sensation. I mean, it does certainly sound nice. I'll say I wouldn't mind trying it someday. But this idea here, this idea about the 
luxuriousness of of wealth is also nicely contrasted with then this narrator's poverty as a writer. That might be a bit of authorial intrusion here. But we also get this classic Gothic trope here of an aristocrat fallen on hard times, right? The narrator is poor, but he shouldn't be given that he's an aristocrat by birth. And we know this from his his French name, his Anglo-Norman name, we might say. Though I do also want to point out here that there is no such thing as a Duke of Picardy. Picardy is a real place in France, but it's never had a Duke. It was also never part of the English crown. I mean, even when the English kings also ruled most of France, this was not a part of France that they ruled. And I was struck by this. I wondered why not pick something real here. But then I thought that maybe what Nesbitt is trying to do is just to give us a a sense of a narrator who belongs to a a very specific class in English society that doesn't actually have a whole lot of members, but doesn't want to get sued by one of those members. So you make up a place. And I guess this is this is about getting sued. Yeah, that could be. And it could also be the case that she's just doubling down on letting the reader know uh, if the readers are aware of, you know, the dukedoms in France, uh, that this is a fantasy story. This is a fantastic tale. And doing something like this indicates, as you said, Glenn, that this is part of a class uh, system that people are familiar with, but it's also a fantastic tale. Yeah, I want to say something else here, too, about this uh, this fallen aristocrat idea here, and especially this line that that he really ought to be rich simply because he's an aristocrat, and finally he's gotten what's due him. Because this is kind of an attitude that Lovecraft had as well. He felt like because his ancestors dated back to the earliest days of New England, that he's a real and, and true American and uh, shouldn't be eating half a can of beans a day as his only sustenance uh, because he he he's deserves better than that. And this is an attitude that we find in his work as well. But there are other things in this story, plot elements that Lovecraft is going to borrow wholesale. And we know he was a big fan of Edith Nesbitt. So uh, almost even this self-identity that Lovecraft has that we have access to through his letters I actually now wonder how much of that wasn't just kind of a fictional persona he was putting on in his letters to people like Robert E. Howard and Clark Ashton Smith that he encountered in this story and thought would be uh, a, a cool persona to take on. Yeah, certainly when you're living in a time where letters are going to be archived and you're aware of that, it might be letter writing was a genre unto itself. So that is a question absolutely worth exploring in Lovecraft scholarship. But (laughs) we're going to return to Edith Nesbitt here. Uh, And the narrator goes on to tell us a little bit more about his life. He's been involved in a courtship with Mildred Mayhew. And he's not officially engaged to her as as of yet, though he does lodge at Mildred's mother's house. And this kind of paints a catastrophic picture of a guy living at his girlfriend's mom's house <laughs> it's it's real rough uh but Devine, probably because he's sort of boxed in in this way does plan on marrying mildred and he tells us when he gets his inheritance that this newfound wealth makes mildred less attractive to him she shines less brightly and Really, what's going on here is Mr. Devine's options have opened up, and he is ready to explore what comes with all this wealth, including perhaps the women of another class. Right. It's hard to break up with your girlfriend when you live with her mom, like because breaking up with her now involves moving and like figuring out, I don't know, your checkbook, like just it's a lot going on. It's not just about saying, you know, I'm not actually that into you. So I think we should just part ways amicably here. Not really an option for him. Yeah, not not a good idea. Don't don't do this at home. But I I have to say, I really like this element of the story. I I guess what I like is that I like Nesbitt 
snippets, observations here about Devine as a sort of person who likes maybe to have a girlfriend just for the sake of having a girlfriend, but not because he specifically likes anything about her as an individual, right? That there's just some comfort of saying, yes, I have a girlfriend. And in fact, I have someone who will marry me if I ever decide that what I want is to be married to someone. I don't want that right now, but she's waiting around and I don't have to do any work. I don't have to put any effort into this. It's interesting to see that from the perspective here of of Edith Nesbitt in in the 1890s, and then to actually make this the the driving action really of the of the plot here, as we're going to find out. Well, Devine has gotten this inheritance, and you know there's proper forms to follow uh, after a family member dies, a mourning period, if you will. And after Devine completes the appropriate mourning period for his aunt's death, he moves right into her house. It's a large house, and now it's his, but he realizes he feels lonely without singing, without the ability to pop downstairs and sing duets with Mrs. Mayhew or <laughs> fetch a Mildred a, a aperitif or whatever's going on here in the 1890s in this house. Uh, and he, he does think of Mildred when he gets lonely. And Glenn, as you said, he thinks of her particularly as someone who he is certain would marry him if he ever bothered to ask, but... He's not sure he really wants to at all. All right, so Edith Nesbitt is going to give us a sort of tour of the furniture and paintings in the house, and a lot and a lot of these are satisfactory to Devine. Uh, the paintings that adorn his living room, living room, these oil paintings are very nice. The furniture is all you know, like oak and leather, as as she says. But there is a really, really bad print of a painting called The Trial of Lord William Russell. And this is a painting done by Sir George Hayter. It was painted in 1825. Uh, Glenn, perhaps you'll have something to say about this uh, painting. But the print is very bad, though it is inside of a frame that is really beautiful. And this is the eponymous frame of the story. This is the ebony frame. It's carved out of ebony wood and it really is a frame in search of the right painting. Devine asks one of his servants, who he maintains now that his aunt has died, he kept all these people on, if his aunt had had this frame for very long, and the servant replies that, yes, she had it for a very long time, longer than even the servant has been employed uh, by his aunt. The painting, though, is new. The, the aunt bought the painting only a few days before her death, and the aunt remembered that she had this frame, which she wasn't using, and so she just used it for the print. But the original painting, uh, the one that the frame encased, is still in the attic. So the next day, after Devine has done all of this sort of sleuthing around this old Gothic mansion, he goes to the attic to find the painting. And he finds a lot of old and out-of-fashion Victorian furniture. It's all made of wood and cloth. It's very flammable, I think, is is the indication here. <laughs> but uh, he also finds the painting that was originally in the ebony frame. The painting seems to have been painted on a panel that was bound in leather. And as Devine is trying to investigate this original painting, he can't distinguish any real colors or objects from the black leather that binds this painting. Devine here shows his true colors once again. He believes he's more capable than even art restorers because all you need to restore a painting is uh, soap and water. So he goes about washing this panel with soap and water to see if there's anything to the painting. And he realizes pretty quickly that the leather is binding together two old oil 
paintings on canvas. So he rips apart the binding and finds that there are indeed two canvas oil paintings, and they're both portraits uh, within. And these portraits are facing one another. So I think anybody would make this mistake. You see the wooden back of a nice canvas painting, and then this is bound in leather, and it's hard to see that there's any painting there at all. But he finds these two portraits. Davine is shocked to discover that one of the portraits is of himself, and it appears to have been painted in a different time, maybe 200 years ago or so, or at least that's a time period represented in the painting. The other one is of a beautiful woman, and Davine is immediately enchanted by this woman's eyes, and he can't look away from the painting for several moments. And he just knows instinctively that this painting, this portrait of this beautiful woman would go perfectly in the ebony frame. And he really spends a lot of time contemplating this painting. So he dismisses the servants and gets to work putting the portrait of the woman in the painting. After he finishes this, he writes to a local frame maker to have a frame made for the portrait that seems to portray him as well. And then that frame arrives maybe in a day or so. And then Devine hangs both of these portraits in the drawing room facing one another. And that's that. Devine can go about his business once again. Yeah, so this is a classic trope of horror literature, right? This old picture that looks exactly like you. And in fact, there's a scene here where the servant is with him as he's unboxing these, as he's pulling the two pictures apart. And she actually thinks that this is a, a painting of him that his aunt had done. And he even thinks that as well for a moment, wondering how this could have possibly been done without him being aware of it. You know, you'd have to sit for something like like this. And so clearly that's not what's going on here, right? This is actually a painting of someone else who just looks exactly like him. And this is a a trope of this type of literature, a trope of horror literature. It is, though, the first time that we're actually getting it here on Elder Sign. But we have to say it will not be the last. And in fact, this shows up in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, which is one of his uh, the H.P. Lovecraft novel. So uh, that's the first item here that we see Lovecraft, uh, maybe not borrowing from this story, but borrowing from this rich tradition of horror literature. And this painting, here, right? This is the second occurrence of the 17th century that's been invoked in this story that's, you know, from the late 19th here. The first one is that painting of Lord William Russell you mentioned, Brandon. Uh, William Russell was executed for treason in 1683. This was uh, wrapped up in the political question of Catholicism. There was a lot of court intrigue and some treason. I mean, it would make a great Game of Thrones style TV show if you're into that. Uh, And Russell later is regarded as a a kind of martyr and certainly by this time, the time of this uh, story's writing, But this painting, this painting that looks just like Devine, this shows a man in what's called cavalier dress. And all that really means is the aristocratic fashions of the 17th century. So the mid-17th century, really, I mean, sort of generation before William Russell. But I think that there's also something of the 17th century in the beautiful, I don't know, sexy ladies uh, portrait as well, because she is surrounded by unfamiliar scientific instruments and then loads and loads of books. And these two things really sort of scream 17th century to me, right? The, The elements of the 17th century that I think loom largest in our cultural imagination, which is really to say the the scientific revolution and then witches. And we're going to see how all of this turns out in a few pages now that we have these two paintings hanging up face to face in the drawing room. Edith Nesbitt also calls to calls the reader's attention uh, to the paintings by the Rossettis as well here. And that was a part of a, a movement called the Pre-Raphaelite 
Pre-Raphaelites, and they really were trying to reclaim this like classical beauty in art. So you have, and their subjects were often ethereal, like fairies or uh, King Arthur court stories, or just different things that involved um, consorting with supernatural creatures. And I think that she has this in mind as she's looking at, as she's writing uh, this story with this painting. Well, as we said, Devine thinks that he's finished with this business of the paintings. They're really just ornaments for the walls of his drawing room. And so he invites Mildred and her mother to come stay with him at his house. He arranges the house to make them to make it a little bit more comfortable for them. But he is always aware of the woman's eyes in the portrait. And one night, uh, while he's waiting for the women to arrive, he wishes to the painting, he's staring at it, that the woman in the painting were real and not just a portrait. And here, Devine insists to the reader, the the person who finds his journal, his mad journal of this event, uh, that he's not drunk or tired, and that none of what is about to occur is the product of a dream. The fire is burned down low in the room, and the embers are flickering and sort of producing shadows and new dark corners and dark spaces in the room. And it appears as though the woman in the painting begins to move. And now there's something in one of the dark corners and Devine, never the coward, decides he's going to face it down lest he be unable to face himself, though he's terrified. And at this point, he's moving towards this corner where he sees this shadowy figure and he sees the woman in the picture move out of the shadows and walk towards him. And this is a moment that is absolutely one of the most horrifying moments in Devine's life up until this point. The woman reaches out her hand and she touches Devine's hand and says, you called me. I am here. At this point, Devine has a strange reaction. He says to her, we are not strangers. And she admits that they are not strangers. And then Devine becomes overjoyed. And Nesbitt writes this, with a passionate cry, a sense of having suddenly recovered life's one great good that had seemed wholly lost. I clasped her in my arms. She was no ghost. She was a woman, the only woman in the world. Then Devine asks her how long it's been since last they met. And the woman has no idea because she's been bound inside of this painting. Both Devine and the woman have this really strong sense of being reunited. But Devine here is rightly mystified as to how they could have ever known one another. There's a lot of really compelling writing in this section. I think Nesbitt gets the horror just right. But there's also a lot of real sexiness to this, right? This is like sultry, like steamy stuff here. The way that she describes this attraction that Devine has to this woman that's almost a, an uncontrolled and unexplained and unexplainable like, compulsion, right? It's just magnetic is not a word that she uses, but it's one that we might use now. Uh, Nisbet also has an interesting euphemism for have sex in this section. She says, the phrase that she uses is make such cheer. <laughs> but, you know, behind this phrase, right, and in between the lines here is this really powerful draw that the narrator has to this mysterious woman who's just climbed out of his painting and emerged from the shadows in this really creepy, terrifying way. He doesn't know who she is. He doesn't know anything about her, but still he is drawn to her. He's almost completely in her power. 
And it's only after they've had sex that we're going to get, and and he also is only going to get at that point as well, some explanation for what's actually going on here. This is a great way to delay giving us, the readers, that exposition, which keeps us hooked, keeps us turning the pages, right? To delay this thing that we're, we're looking for. But I have to say that all of this actually feels to me a lot like sex position, right? Like if HBO had been making TV shows here in the 1890s, this is how they would be doing it. Yeah, I think you're right about that. It's really bizarre to me that she has put this, you know, very Victorian sex scene into the story. It's probably two paragraphs, but it's just a lot of them touching and a lot of euphemisms for what they're up to. It was fun to read to see the number of ways that she came up with to cover their activities while relying solely on euphemism in the text. And that was pretty fun. But it's also strange uh, because if you ever find a haunted painting and the woman comes out of it, you should probably not believe any of your feelings at that point. You shouldn't trust yourself. Yeah, I mean, you definitely just want to get the heck out of this house as quickly as possible. Really should have done that as soon as the painting started Scooby-Dooing on you with the like right. moving eyes, right? Like, right. just just go at that point. You know, yeah. maybe the painting is really doing that. And if that's true, then you definitely need to be out. Maybe it's all in your head. So take a walk, get some fresh air. Either way, getting out of the house is always the right thing to do. I'll tell you what, here's another piece of advice. Uh, if you ever get an inheritance to a spooky manor, uh, maybe consider selling it before setting foot in it. <laughs> really, really get that real estate money before you end up unearthing some hard family secret or uh, something along those lines. There's a whole second podcast we're starting here. <laughs> Adv- <laughs> advice columns. <laughs> advice columns for being caught in gothic horror. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's going to happen to all of us at some point or another. People need this. <laughs> yes, they do. I think so. Right. Well, the woman is now ready to tell her side of the story of how these two folks know one another. And she's going to years and years ago. I mean, in the 17th century, as we've talked about, Devine was a good soldier and she was an intelligent and beautiful and brilliant woman. And they were engaged to be married and they were very much in love. And Devine had no problems with her studying things like astrology and science and all the sorts of things that women, that good women shouldn't be studying in the 17th century. Devine was also a soldier, and he got called away to fight in a war. And while he was gone, the villagers were the villagers were ready to show how put off they were by this woman's ability to read the stars and maybe just read in general and her above average intelligence. So they burned her for a witch. Now, the woman says she wasn't a witch at this point. She was just curious. But she did end up becoming a witch the night before she was burned. The devil came to her and said that if she would give up her soul, he could preserve her in a painting. And as long as that painting was within the ebony frame that was carved by the devil himself, she could be called out of it for anybody who wished to see her. She agreed because she knew that the love that her and Devine's prior incarnation had was so strong that their souls would meet again in another life and she would just have to wait to be called out of the painting. The man who was Devine in the past eventually came home from war and remarried. The villagers lied to him about what happened to his fiance, but they did tell him that she died. And so, yeah, he got remarried and had kids and and lived this whole other life. The paintings, though, that were done were stored facing one another 
so that she could be cheek to cheek or face to face with the man she loved until he was reincarnated and call her down from the painting once more. And this is the story of how they met. This is their meet cute. The 19th century meet cute. Yeah, there's got to be a better term for meet cute. I don't know, meet gothic or meet goth, I guess we'll call that. Uh, yeah, meet goth, sure. I don't know, Frank, I'd rather have that than a meet cute, I suppose. But yeah, this this is a dreadfully sad story, right? Dude goes away to war. Uh, presumably, this is the English Civil War of the 1640s. Comes back, finds his fi- fiance gone uh, and dead, right? The villagers do tell him that she died, but they don't tell him how. So he doesn't know that any of this happened. We're going to take up a little bit more here about what it is that actually happened uh, in the discussion. But right, she's burned alive by these villagers, burned alive as a witch for studying uh, astronomy just because she's educated. That's a that's a, a sad story. It is a really sad story. And, and, and we'll be able to point out certain parallels between this story and the conclusion of the Nesbitt story, the ebony frame. Well, at this point in the story, after she's done retelling them their own history, retelling Devine their lover's history here. Uh, the woman from the painting lets him know that they can be together once again in this life, and all he has to do is give up his soul. If he does this, she will become a full woman again instead of this sort of specter living inside of the painting. Devine, of course, thinks it's absurd to even talk of souls, being a cosmopolitan man of the of the 19th century. But he wants to get started on the arrangements of losing his soul as quickly as possible. And he doesn't necessarily believe in heaven, uh, but he believes that if he can recorporealize this woman in, in entirety by giving up his soul, and she can live with him until they both die, he can make a heaven on earth. So who cares about whether or not there's a soul and where it's going after you die? You can make a heaven right here with uh, this this woman, his loved one from the painting. Yeah, I wasn't actually sure how much he really even understood about what she was saying, right? It seemed to me that the two of them are really actually talking past each other during this explanation, right? She is giving him very technical details about the metaphysics of what's going on here, about how you uh, get to live in a painting and come out of it and have sex with some dude in the drawing room and so on. But it seemed to me that he was really choosing to understand all of her metaphysical terms, right? Things like soul and, and heaven, I mean, specifically soul and heaven, that he was choosing to understand these words metaphorically rather than literally or technically like he, d- he doesn't actually stop and say well those things you're talking about don't really exist so they don't matter so let's just go ahead and do whatever he doesn't ever come out and and say that and so i wasn't actually sure if he really even understood what she was getting at or if he's just living in a in a world in which soul and heaven are just metaphorical concepts they're just metaphors for things that they're not literal or, or technical terms and so he just doesn't quite get what she's saying, or if he does, but is being clever, where he's actually trying to get what he wants, which is her, without actually giving his informed consent to having his soul be taken, so that he can always say, well, I didn't I didn't know that's what you literally meant when you were talking about soul, so the deal is not valid. Yeah, this part took me a few times to kind of read through, I think, to get a sense of what's going on here. I think this whole character of Devine is really meant to be viewed as a total scoundrel and wastrel as well. And this extends to his cosmological beliefs as well, his religious beliefs. And so I think Edith Nesbitt is trying to 
balance her language in such a way that doesn't tip over into promoting atheism, but it's suggesting that this character is an atheist as well. And so by Devine resorting maybe to using metaphor to talk about souls in heaven, he's trying to use the language of this woman to give her promises about how good their life will be on earth. Uh, while Nesbitt is trying to have the hero of this uh, gothic romance really be an, an atheist and a terrible human being. Yeah, and I do think he probably is really a terrible human being. He certainly reads that way to us, but we'll we'll talk in the discussion about what Nesbitt wants a, a contemporary audience here in the 1890s to think about this guy. So let's get back to this plan about how to lose your soul once you've met your dream woman inside of a painting. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's not a sentence either of us ever thought we would encounter. <laughs> well, here it is. Uh, the woman doesn't give too many more details, but presumably the devil's going to show up and he's going to sign some scroll or parchment or something like that. But she says she has to wait until the ghosting hour, which is tomorrow at midnight. It's every day at midnight, but this time period of her ability to be out of the painting is up. Devine drifts off with his head in her lap, which is another wonderful Shakespearean euphemism here. And when he wakes up, uh, the woman has returned to the painting. Upon his waking, Devine remembers that he had invited Mildred and her mother over, and they're going to stay for a while, and they're coming over for lunch and tea first. And he says here that he had all but forgotten about Mildred's existence, just the fact of her existence. And at this point, he feels that the fact that he has to engage with real people in the real world made this waking world more of a dream than the hours he spent with the woman in the painting last night. He, he's basically dissociated himself from reality. Mildred and her mother arrive, and they're fine. They're probably like they always are. But Devine now finds them to be boorish, and he finds it tedious that he even has to sit with them and endure their company. And this is made worse by the fact that Mildred and her mother tease Devine about his painting. And this is, and in this moment, you can really see that they're trying to get him to uh, eschew his relationships with other women and just get onto the business of marrying Mildred so she can be wealthy too. Mildred and the mother ask if it's one of his conquests, as I hinted at before, or a new woman of some sort or something along these lines. And He's irritated, but he gets even more upset when Mildred tries to sit in the chair that the woman in the portrait sat in the night before. And it also turns out that this is the chair that she is painted having been that she is sitting in while she's sitting for the portrait itself. It's it's very eerie. But Devine is just real testy. He's being nasty, and he decides he's the one who shouldn't be in the house, not Mildred and the mother. He's trying to be courteous. And he lies to them and says he has an appointment he forgot about, and he's going to leave the house presumably for something like 12 hours until, uh, <laughs> until midnight, until the ghosting hour, uh, so he can revisit the woman in the house. Yeah, you've got, you got to have better excuses line, <laughs> lined up here. Yeah, you, you can't got... just be returning videotapes uh, or, or meeting Dr. Cosby at the Hyatt. You know? <laughs> that only right. works for a very specific subset of people. Yeah, this is, it's unfortunate that you know, they didn't have any cell phones here where you could, you could have someone uh, call you with the fake emergency so you could uh, you could run out but yeah as you've pointed out Brandon Devine here is really 
awful to them. And he, I don't think he's trying to be awful to them. In fact, I think he's actually trying to mitigate how awful he would like to be to them. But he thinks some pretty terrible things about Mildred. And one of the things that he thinks is that, you know, she's pretty enough, I guess, but her prettiness is really more appropriate for a barmaid and, and not really for someone in his class, right? And there there's some other other descriptors that he has for her here, of her here, that use a lot of class language and that's going to be one of the topics we have for the discussion but before we get to the the final episode here in the story i mean there's a lot going on in the climax here of the story i want to pause and just call our attention to one really beautiful sentence that nesbitt writes in the story because you know we like beautiful sentences here at clay temple media and this is what nesbitt writes she says when I awoke, the gray November dawn was glimmering ghost-like through the uncurtained window. This was a sentence that just I don't know, made my day brighter, even though it's actually describing this kind of gloomy day. There was just something really beautiful about this. It's so evocative, has some great alliteration on these Gs. I guess I should say that, you know, we were prepping to record this episode sort of at the end of November around Thanksgiving time, so it seemed to really resonate with me while I was reading it. It was, you know, exactly what I was looking at out my window and, and so on, but just great descriptive sentence there. Yeah, this story is written really well, and she's certainly in full command of her narrative powers. Uh, whether or not this story plays to a contemporary audience, I think, is a whole other question. This story is a lot of fun for uh, being a sort of gothic horror story. Well, we just left Devine wandering around the streets, and he continues to wander for as long as he can. And while he's wandering the streets, kind of bouncing around, doing whatever, he is in his head a lot, reliving... All of the special moments he had with his lady friend who lives in a painting. Around 11 p.m., he hears the bells toll through the London fog here, and he decides it's time to head back home because it's only an hour before he has to talk to the woman in the painting again and sign away his soul to the devil. As he gets closer and closer to his house, he he realizes that something's wrong. There's a house on fire nearby, and he finally gets close enough to realize that the house that's on fire is his house. And Mildred is trapped inside the house. She's leaning out the first story window. Devine tries to run in the house, but the fireman stops him and says, listen, we're going to be able to get Mildred out of the house. But Devine's thoughts are, what about his woman? What about the woman in the painting? So he pushes off the fireman and he runs inside the house and it's very smoky and there's a lot of fire because all the old Victorian furniture has kind of gone up in flames here. And he grabs Mildred or rather Mildred grabs him. There's kind of a mutual grabbing to rescue one another (laughs) taking place here. Uh, And he gets Mildred out of the house and he runs back in so that he can get to the drawing room where the picture is. But before he can reach the mantle, the floor in the drawing room collapses and he's thrown down to the first floor and he passes out. This is really the end of the story here, but we are given a coda. Devine tells us that he was rescued, but the whole house was destroyed and everything in it was also destroyed. Devine believes that he's now living in a sort of hell, a kind of bad dream where the love of his life is lost forever. He's marrying Mildred, and he goes about his affairs, and he moves through his dull life, but he knows the truth now. None of this stuff matters. Mildred, his wealth, the house they've moved into, whether or not they have kids, none of it really matters because this world is just a dream anyway. And what does it matter what one does in a dream? 
And this is the end of the story. Yeah, this ending is really distressing. And, and not because I feel any particular empathy for the narrator's pathos here at the end, but because Davina is clearly unwell as he's writing this. His whole attitude to life now is that nothing matters because nothing is real. And it seems that he was actually much happier before he had the luxury of being rich that we get in the first sentence of the story. And that might be something of a moral statement that Nesbitt is making here. And while I don't actually want that to be our first discussion topic, we will get to that in the discussion here. Yeah, Nesbitt has really explicitly displayed at the end of the story that Devine has become a total committed solipsist, that he just believes he's living in a world that is taking place entirely inside of its own head. And that's certainly a problem that Nesbitt is encountering in this story as well. Well, and he's been confronted with some real strange facts, I guess, about the nature of reality here in this story. And that's what I want to tackle first is the metaphysics that we have going on here in this story. Because prior to this, I mean, I think it's clear, as you as you suggested, Brandon, that Nesbitt is setting Devine up to be a kind of casual atheist. I mean, he probably identifies as a Christian and, you know, a good member of the Church of England, but doesn't really internalize any of the cosmological teachings of the of the church uh, that may even be wrapped up in all the images we have of the scientific revolution as well in this story. But nonetheless, this story depends on the hard, absolute truth of late medieval, early modern Christian cosmology, the devil, hell, heaven, all of these are real in the, the world of this story. And he's been confronted with this, but he doesn't really seem to be thinking about that at all. And I wondered what you made of of these cosmological facts in this story there that Nesbitt presents them to the to us, the readers, as if these are real as well. But that doesn't really ever seem to be something that Devine himself grapples with in any explicit way. Well, I certainly think that the conflict between being a sort of casual atheist, as you said, and uh, knowing that the devil is real is going to become a, a wedge in the relationship between uh, <laughs> Devine and the girl in the painting. And I think it's it's sort of humorously presented that way in the story that Devine is not in his right mind. So whether or not he accepts that the story that the woman in the painting told is true about how she was able to be called out of the painting, he's willing to engage with that story insofar as he gets what he wants from the woman. And this is sort of his general attitude towards people as well. So it didn't strike me as that much of a conflict in the story of Devine encountering a new world system. I think in terms of Devine encountering the truth of maybe the teachings of the Church of England or, or the Christian Bible or Christianity in general— so much as Nesbitt is walking us down a path to of somebody becoming uh, a solipsist, really, somebody who doesn't believe other things and other people are real uh, because they've committed themselves to a sort of delusion of the realness of a, a kind of emotional reality that they can share with somebody else rather than their commitments to other people in the world. So Devine becomes a sort of ghost by the end of the story, though he's materially real. And I think those are the sorts of things that Nesbitt is playing with more than the hard truths of uh, 
modern Christianity and, and cosmology. Well, there's some nice use of this idea here of, of thinking about the devil, thinking about hell and heaven and souls and so on as metaphors rather than technical terms, as, as literal truths in, in the world. Because when he is talking with her about this, when he's using this metaphorical language and she's using this technical language, one of the things he says is, ah, well, we'll make heaven a, a place on earth. I don't know. We might get sued by Belinda Carlisle for my use of that there. <laughs> right. But that's what he says. He's like, well, we can make having a real place, just the two of us existing in the world, kind of refusing even to believe the way that she's using these languages as technically true. But he is living in a world where these words are metaphors, and he actually doesn't get this earth that is heaven. He doesn't get this heaven on earth metaphor at the end of the story, but he does get hell on earth at the end of the story. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And he kind of has to commit to one vision or another of the world. I think you're right to say that he was confronted with maybe a reality of a worldview being true. But the same could be said of that for the woman as well. I mean, what is Nesbitt really doing by having this woman uh, literally inframed in the, the devil's own handiwork? One thing is, one thing I think Nesbitt is pointing out is that Though this woman is a rational human being, a scientist, you said astronomer, she might be an astrologer as well, looking at the stars for truth and meaning, Um, but she's studied and she's curious that, that, that those things are not protections from the sorts of emotional realities or spiritual realities that many people encounter. And this woman made a choice to sell her soul not to continue her studies like you see in a Faustian tale or become a master of some kind, but really just to rediscover the love of her life at some undetermined point in the future. And until she does, she has to live in a painting and she has to be such a compelling painting that people have to wish her out of it. And so this seems to be a sort of strange trade-off that the woman's made as well, given what we're told about her character traits in the world that she lived in. Well, and all of this business about reincarnation and, and the souls as well doesn't actually really fit in all that well with the other cosmology that we have, right? We are presented her, as you say, uh, as this learned, educated woman, though, of course, here in the 17th century, you can believe in science and also magic at the same time. I mean, we think of Isaac Newton as, you know, the apple fell on his head and he uh, discovered the concept of, of gravity and invented all of the physics that we needed to get, you know, people onto the, the, the freaking moon, right? That's true. He also thought he could turn lead into gold or that he could figure out a way to do that and also thought that uh, the Bible was literally true or that there were hidden messages in the Bible and he devised a whole system to figure out when the end of the world was going to come. He came up with three different dates. None of them have turned out to be true so far as we can tell, I suppose. Right. But that's the sort of double-edged sword of the scientific revolution that we get taught it in high school as this sort of triumph of empiricism, but it was nothing of the sort. And so it's totally believable that she would have, uh, you know, astronomy and astrology kind of wrapped up in the same thing here. She also tells us that she knew all about reincarnation already before the, the devil actually gets to her to make this bargain with her. And this struck me as weird and, and strange 
because of her choice here, right? Where she's given this option to exist forever in hell, but to have this gateway back into the world through the painting if someone ever wishes hard enough for her to come out of the painting. And she hopes that she'll have an opportunity for that to be the reincarnated soul of her love who has gone off to war. But if you believe in reincarnation, if you think that when you die, you're going to come back again, why not just allow that to happen? Why make this deal? Why give up your soul if you can just come back again? I, I'm not really sure that the metaphysics of this were all that well thought through here. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't I don't think they really were. This could have been a simple cursed object story. But I also think that for most readers, these really don't present as sorts of conflicts. I mean, if you are living uh, under the flag of the British Empire at this period of time, you're going to have been confronted with the ideas of reincarnation through uh, Hindu, perhaps, belief systems, uh, through other belief systems, through belief systems really that have primarily come from India. And uh, it's a major impact on the thought really up through the middle of the 20th century. Uh, well, really through the first third of the 20th century is the impact of alternate religious systems and the commitment to which people hold to them in other parts of the world. That's really the result of exploring of the British uh, colonizing so much of the world. And so I think to live with this sort of cognitive dissonance is really a hallmark of modernism as a, as a kind of literary project. And I think that that is what Edith Nesbitt is really caught up in here is really caught up in uh, with and whether she's responding to it by keeping everything in the story sort of Christian cosmology or uh, sort of uh, loosely Western philosophical story, or she's looking at the challenges that modernity, that modernism has really brought to people that modernism explores, which is the break breaking down of institutions and the, need to sort of engage with the world at, on multiple parts of yourself, but there's no place for you to go as a whole, uh, whether she's doing that consciously or she's just a part of the sort of a zeitgeist here. Uh, I think it's on full display in this story that this is really a, a story that is caught up in modernism using sort of gothic horror and Victorian tropes. Well, and all of the, the imagery that she's drawing on here, since it may be all of the imagery, but the historical imagery that she's drawing on here with these paintings, uh, and really all three paintings here in the in the story, are, are also actually about religious change and, and a conflict driven by religion. And that's the, the English Civil War and then some of the aftermath of that, This, uh, which is uh, you know sort of two things, a crisis between Catholics and Protestants, but then that in itself is kind of wrapped up in politics about monarchy versus uh, something we might call democracy today, but it isn't quite right. It's a little bit anachronistic to call it that. But the whole story seems to hinge on this moment in English history where there were these important social, cultural, and political divisions that erupted in violence, right? We've got the the, the people in the portraits who suffered in the English Civil War, right? One was a soldier, the other is this woman who's, who's burned to death while her fiance is gone, where her father is in all of this unclear it's a backstory that uh we just don't we just don't get though maybe he's off at war too in fact presumably he would be they're all probably fighting on the, the same side but then we also have lord russell as a martyr for the the cause here the cause of getting catholicism out of england i'm not quite sure what she's doing with that imagery but it is all over the place I, i'm really not sure either 
it is a major part of this story. And I think and I think it could be the case that one thing she's exploring is a time of social upheaval and change, which I think the 1890s were in England. But maybe she's also experiencing some changes in the way people experience religion as a result of a sort of late enlightenment rational project. You mentioned empiricism before, and that was certainly a very important part of the scientific revolution. And lots of great philosophy and science has been read about how to make empiricism work with uh, any sort of metaphysical belief. And by the time you get to really Kant or David Hume, you say like, well, we'll just put those things over here and empiricism will define as the range of things we can encounter and touch and experience in the material world. But that doesn't mean that the language that people used really changed to talk about the world. And certainly there are plenty of philosophical projects caught up in trying to confine language in the same way that science tried to define itself using empiricism. But regardless of what's going on with the split between the material and non-material or spiritual world, the project of rationalism is really still going on in a in a major way here. And this is st- this is all leading up, though these people don't know it, to World War One, which many um, many people at that time period viewed as a total failure of the Enlightenment project. That this idea of the the kind of individual who can think for themselves and make their own destiny and and move their way through life has really only led to these sorts of systems uh, where that people are caught up in where they their freedom is really an illusion and part of the trick of the enlightenment project if you want to put it that way is this idea of living in a purely rational world and so this story maybe then could be read as a critique of enlightenment in that way, that try as we might to live in a rational and empirical world, there are always things outside of us that draw us into maybe sorts of madness. And this is also part of what it means to be a human being. So perhaps Nesbitt is doing a bit of critique of enlightenment here. I'd like to think so. It's a topic I love to really talk about. And it's entirely possible that that is why this sort of tumultuous change imagery is all over the story as uh, this project of rationalism and empiricism doesn't really seem to cut the mustard for Nesbitt's own sense of what it means to be a human being. Right. I'm quite interested in her feelings on exactly this. I'm not sure that she is offering up a critique of enlightenment or a critique of of rationalism or science here at all. In addition to all this bizarre imagery of the English Civil War, there's also some bizarre imagery, some bizarre interplay here going on with class and science and witchcraft in the 17th century as well, right? So, you know, the the, the principal character here is this this woman who you know lives in the picture, right? She's uh, when she was alive, she was an aristocrat, and we know this because she has the the money for scientific instruments and books and also portraits and so on. Uh, also because her fiance in his picture is in court dress. He's a courtier, which means landed aristocracy in the 17th century. But then she's burned for witchcraft, right? And and yeah, okay, this is a thing that could happen in the 17th century, but not to 
an aristocratic woman. Now, I don't work on this period at all, but as far as I know, there was only ever one aristocrat who was actually even accused of witchcraft during the early modern witchcraft craze. That was an extremely complicated case that was also wrapped up in in court intrigue and and, and treason and so on. But that is not at all what happens here. It, It seems that what's happened here in this story is that while her fiance is gone, the villagers just get freaked out by her book learning and her science gadgets. And so they just burn her, right? It's like straight out of Monty Python. But all of this, the way Nesbitt describes it, all of this is vague. The the agents of the burning are only called they. And, you know, we're told that there's a trial. But my sense of this is that this woman is the victim of ignorant villagers who are suspicious of education and suspicious of learning and science, that they're suspicious of rationality and empiricism. And so they take matters into their own hands here during this civil war in which public authority has broken down. And they burn her as kind of a representative, all of these things that they're afraid of, that they're suspicious of. So to me, this seemed actually like a celebration of science and empiricism and presenting this woman is actually kind of a martyr for that in the way that Lord William Russell is a, a martyr for parliamentarianism uh, that you know is an image that, that we get very early in this story. So I actually had to wonder if there was maybe kind of some bit of class animosity that Nesbitt is expressing here, this some sort of anti-lower class animosity because they're uneducated and uncouth, and sometimes they burn people. I don't think that's the case in the story, or at least that's not the way I read it. And, and this is because if we read the woman in the painting as a sort of martyr, then Devine is really the answer to the question of what is the outcome of what they've built and or, or of what people like this have been martyred for. And the answer is really just sort of a snobby, classist brat who doesn't really have to do anything in the world and can just take all of these ideas for granted and not really engage with what they mean or their origins or where they came from. And so I I think that maybe she's saying there was a time when there was landed gentry and aristocracy that were really doing good maybe for the people. But what this has devolved into now is really a mess. And she must have been very critical of class because Edith Nesbitt was a member of the Fabian Society, um, which was a social democratic party, a really socialist party. um, And it was founded and run by a bunch of really famous British playwrights and novelists and scientists. And she was really involved with that. Um, So I think that her critique of class here in this story must come from the point of view of the worthlessness of class and easy money. And I think that uh, that's what she's trying to show us with Devine, though she's also saying, hey, that wasn't always the case. The way we organize society today, if we're basing it on what people were like 200 years ago, that's not a good idea. We need something new to encounter all the changes that have actually taken place in our society. And maybe that's why she's pointing to these tumultuous changes in society in her story as well. Right, because class is all over the now of this story as well, right? I mean, it's in the very first paragraph, the very first sentence, really, of the story, right? We have the poverty of Devine at the beginning, even though he's got this aristocratic heritage. And the real arc for him in this story is that 
now that he's experienced the love of this, you know, sexy aristocratic lady who lives in the painting, he just can't even deal with Mildred Mayhew. And Mildred's very name screams commoner here, right? Mildred is as Anglo-Saxon as you can get, contrasted with Devine, which is this very French aristocratic name. Mayhew also, this is, I mean, it's literally just two English words, Mayhew, right? It's the time you, you cut plants down in May or something. I know nothing about farming, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then he also goes on, he, he describes her as having a chocolate box barmaid style of prettiness. This is a disgusting phrase. I mean, it's a well-crafted sentence, but it's a disgusting way to, to think about somebody. And he also thinks of her vulgar voice, right? Not meaning crass, but common, vulgar, meaning common here, that he suddenly feels like he is a, he is better than her, even though literally two days ago, he was renting a room in her mom's house and maybe not even renting it. Frankly, it's not actually clear he was paying any rent there. Yeah, it's, I don't think he was paying rent at all. It's my understanding that he was living there because he was dating Mildred. And he's got all of that kind of, you know, we talked about Lovecraft earlier, that kind of Lovecraftian disdain for nobody appreciating his writing. <laughs> um, and, you know, he's like, ah, I can't make it as a journalist. I'm living in my mom's girlfriend's house in like a rented room. And he's not grateful for anything. He has no sense of gratitude that he's able to live there, that his needs are met, that he has community and shelter and maybe a job that doesn't pay well, but one he likes to do. The second he hopscotches over them, they become intolerable to him. And and that's because he's living with an attitude that he's automatically already better and he's just waiting for the means to prove it. And this is an attitude we see a lot of weird fiction and horror and horror protagonists carry is that delusion of grandiosity of worth beyond what reality shows them and these people are often avowed materialists and atheists that just believe they got a bad deal and they'll show everybody that they're better as soon as they get the chance to but they don't really work Devine didn't really work before he was an aristocrat, but now that he is, he just has an excuse not to. And I think Nesbitt is pretty critical of maybe both sides of uh, the sort of labor division here about what people are owed and why. Yeah, I think so, too. And, and really, even as we've been talking about this, I can't help but be reminded of The Insanity of Jones by Algernon Blackwood about 10 years after this, but which, again, focuses on uh, middle class Englishman who really feels like he's better than the station he presently occupies. And in fact, this is also wrapped up in a fantasy about the past, right? So there is definitely something going on here, I think maybe just of, of, of thinking about, about class and maybe about the middle class, especially, and dreaming of a day when a, a man with my talents would have a higher station in the world. Uh, that, might be a, that might be something we take up as a theme at our, our 2020 year in review episode. If we, you know, I know we're 20 episodes to go before we get there, uh, but that might be worth, worth talking about. There's one more thing I want to talk about here in this story, and this is just to talk about the craft, right? We are you know, attempting to be writers ourselves here, and so we like to take apart stories and see how they function. And something that, that jumped out to me about this story, as much as I, I loved it, I really enjoyed this story. Some beautiful sentences. I loved all of the imagery here, even though I found it kind of complicated and maybe muddled, but complicated, we'll say. But the resolution of this story is entirely just accidental, right? The rising action toward the climax puts the narrator in a position where he is going to have to choose whether to give up his soul for all time in exchange for a single lifetime with his lover. 
but then he doesn't actually ever have to make that choice, right? We're building to the moment of him making that choice. And then the choice is just made for him by an accidental fire. I found that a little dissatisfying. How did that work for you? I spent some time thinking about what is going on here at the end of the story, because you're absolutely right that Nesbitt does not draw out the conclusion of the story or the, the, the denouement, really, in a way that satisfies what she's leading up to. She kind of switches gears at the end. And as I've said, you know, too many times, probably really just reveals a really reveals that the story is a thematic exploration of a problem of solipsism really more than it is uh, a horror story. But I think the the key phrase to really understanding this is Devine's promise to the woman in the painting that he will make a heaven on earth here. And the fact that he's making a deal with the devil, right? So he, he says, I will give my soul to the devil and we will have a heaven on earth. But she, but the woman in the painting makes it very clear that heaven is entirely inaccessible to his or her souls if they decide to make this deal and move forward with it. And I think that that really, this fire at the end is really the culmination of that, that that for him to simply call heaven a metaphor isn't a problem for the devil. He says, fine, if you want heaven here, uh, you can't have that either. There's no heaven available to you. And the fact that you are going to redefine the sort of cosmology that I live in doesn't stop me from ruining everything that you are claiming is going to make your life heavenly on earth. And I really think that that is what happens at the end of the story. The fire is certainly mysterious. Nobody knows how it happens. You know, I made that joke earlier at the beginning of the episode about how the Victorian furniture is probably flammable. That's not really foreshadowed in the story in any significant way. Um, so it really does come out of left field. And I have to think that he, he did actually make his choice. And that's why he's living in hell. Yeah, that's a really interesting reading here on the story. I had a different interpretation, not really interpretation, but I had a different way of reading some level of agency here at the story, none of which is explicit in the text, or at least the action is not explicit in the text. But we do get this line where the fireman says something along the lines of this was because the the, the maid accidentally, you know, knocked over a, a candle or, you know, it caught a curtain on fire or something like that, that there was a candle burning in the maid's room. And that's what started this, uh, the, this fire. And I actually, in my head, Canon was wondering if she was not privy to all of this. She lives in the house, so maybe she actually, you know, saw the whole incident with the woman crawling out of the painting and them having an awful lot of uh, devilish sex uh, in the drawing room and hearing the conversation about making the deal. And so she burnt the place because to me, I thought this then is a parallel with what actually happens during the English Civil War when the villagers burn her for being a witch and that we have this uh, this common who is doing this, this lower, well, that's not really the, the language we would use here in the 1890s, but a, a lower class woman, a servant class woman taking matters into her own hands here uh, again, because these uh, upper class people are messing with cosmological powers that are going to doom all of us. But none of that's explicit in the text. No, it's certainly not. And there is a parallel, obviously, between the burning of the woman in the painting as a witch and her painting burning here at the end, whether that's divine intervention or not is unclear. It's a very strange way to wrap up this story and maybe a little unsatisfying uh, because it does turn what it, it, it stops 
Edith Nesbitt f- from investigating what she seems to really be investigating throughout the whole story. Uh, so I think you're right to say it is a little muddled. There are certainly muddled elements of this story, but it's a really fun bit of gothic horror. So I enjoyed it quite a lot as well. So that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. You can find us and our other creative projects, as always, at claytemplemedia.com. And of course, that does include all our other podcasts, and we really do hope you'll check those out as well. Head over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of this story by Edith Nesbitt, the ebony frame. Let us know what you think is happening with all of this class and religious imagery, or maybe just tell us what you think the end of the story really means. Yeah, I think we actually answered zero questions. We raised a whole lot uh, and answered zero here. We really struck out. So it'll be great to hear what people have to say on the the forums about this. Next time, we're going to be back with the first story in a new batch chosen by our Patreon supporters. This is going to be The Mask by Robert W. Chambers, which is the second story in the King and Yellow cycle. I am very excited about that. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.